Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. I am delighted today because a friend in Nashville, Tennessee has a book coming out tomorrow, and this is a big day for him. We're going to be talking with David Wells, and the book is When Anything is Possible, Wealth in the Art of Strategic Living. He's the CEO and chairman of the board of Family Capital Strategy. What they do is they provide advice around significant family businesses, and they help families think multi-generationally. David, welcome aboard and congratulations in advance. It's a big day for you. Thanks, Fraser. It's a pleasure to be here. And I feel like in many ways it's you work really hard just to get to the starting line. So the book is done, but now it's the getting out and making sure people know that what the message of the book is for sure. Terrific. So take us through your background a little bit. You provide advice in let's call it your day job. You help families with businesses, many times private. Many times the wealth is concentrated or they have an edge in a particular thing. And they're trying to think about what they want to do with the next generation. How do they think about wealth? How do they think about life in a post-business environment? How did you get to that point? And how do you advise the families that you work with? I kind of came to this work because I got bit by the investing bug when I was in college and fell in love with the questions of how do you allocate capital? And really, I think more at a base level, I think what's really interesting about investing is, is it's kind of the real-time scoreboard for strategy. When you talk about how do businesses compete, how do they structure themselves, the ultimate success or failure of the business gets played out in the marketplace. And so my background was I studied strategy in college, kind of had this interesting background of both strategy and philosophy as kind of my focuses in school. And when I got out of school, I started working in the investment world as a research analyst and spent about six and a half years writing research for large money managers, predominantly hedge funds with a handful of mutual funds, then ran a long, short partnership, kind of a Buffett-style investment fund. And over the course of that period of time, and especially when I was running my hedge fund, got exposed to the family office world and had a number of families that were investors, spent a lot of time talking with family offices about what we were doing. And ultimately, what I found was this really interesting, actually, and ultimately, at the end of it, found it a question set that actually was probably more interesting than capital allocation, which is this dynamic of for families that have shared wealth that is multi-generational in nature, it is probably the one unarbitrageable advantage in investing. The ability to think for 10, 15, 20 or longer years in time horizon in a world that just gets shorter term and shorter term and shorter term, it truly is a competitive advantage from an investment perspective and so the next question then is, okay, well, when does that work and when does that not work? And really what I began to find as I was running my fund and then ultimately ended up working with an asset management firm, managing portfolios for clients prior to starting my firm, was that at the end of the day, the, the capital allocation piece is actually pretty straightforward. Getting the risk budget, figuring out the right mix of equities and bonds, private equity and the like. But the bigger question that sits right alongside that is, what is the family trying to accomplish with this pool of assets? And then how do you make sure that the family doesn't blow itself up between today and X future date when success is realized? And so that process in answering that question really became kind of all consuming of, okay, how do you support families in the work of staying together so that they can realize this really neat tactical advantage they have in the marketplace? 
So that's what I do now with families is help them think strategically about the direction that they want to go and then pair that with this question of, okay, well, if this is where you're heading, what's the infrastructure that you have to build alongside that so that you can get to where you want to go? It is a bit of a chicken and an egg problem where if you have all strategy but no rails, no track laid down, then the family doesn't go anywhere. And if you have all structure but no alignment within the family, then you end up with a a lot of times you end up with an office that's so far ahead of the family that typically, like in that instance, the office falls apart, the family office falls apart because they lost their client. And so it's this methodical process of how do you march on both sides at the same time so that the family is realizing its advantage in investing and then ultimately, as soft as it may sound, heading towards whatever their definition of success or flourishing looks like. So interesting point that you bring up there about sort of having that two-pronged approach where you've got to have some element of structure or people sort of fly off and do their own thing and it you don't have any agreement on anything. But at the same time, if you don't have critical mass built up, then you don't have the resources to really drive the point home. Maybe take us through a little bit. If a family comes to you and they have, let's say, a family business that generates some level of revenue that's significant, what are the steps you take them through so that you have an understanding of where they are on that continuum between good structure, let's call it the good engine of revenue, and where they need to fall in between so that they're able to get where they're going strategically? The first step is I really think it's helpful to look at where the family is in time. And so it's not rocket science, but families have generations. And depending on where the family is and its generational story is going to really will architect and shape the way that they answer their questions. So what I mean is, is that if the first generation is still active and involved, typically the simple reality is most of the time is a very dominant patriarch figure. It's that core entrepreneur who had that kind of the chutzpah to launch a business, wrestle the tiger to the ground, build something and grow. If that person is still present, that dramatically informs them the questions that the family is going to be to a be able to ask, and then b generally those folks are almost anathematic. They have like an allergic reaction to structure because it feels contrary to the entrepreneurial ethos of the business. And so, with G one families, in many cases, it's a question of okay, well, where is that G one in terms of succession planning? Have they begun to transition the con- functional control of the business or the assets so that you have a second generation that begins to arise? that it's making decisions. And so really, I personally find G2, G3, and 4 and beyond families a little bit more, it's not to say interesting to work with, but there's a little bit more to be done there because when you have distributed ownership for the first time, if it's siblings, the term is in the industry, like there's a sibling partnership. It's a group of individuals who are coming together to make business decisions. Okay, now you've got some interesting questions because when you have multiple owners, now you have politics, now you have differences of views. So the question is, is how does this cohort begin to make decisions together? And then conversely, if you go like a generation further into the third generation and beyond, well, at that point, the question is not necessarily like, how do you make decisions together? It's more, how do you deal with the scale problems of having large numbers of owners? The exponential math of it is, and typically wealthy families have more children than non-wealthy families. And so if I think the U.S., average reproductive rate is like 1.7 children per female. I think now what you see is in wealthy families, that is well north of two. And I think in in certain markets, I've heard stories like in New Canaan, like four is the new two. Like you've got (laughs) very, very large families becoming the norm again. And so what that means is, is that by the time you get to a third gen, like you may have 10 to 17 direct lineal descendants 
depending on the size of that second gen. And so you bring them in, you bring in spouses, and if you bring in their own kids, well, now you've easily got a group of 20 to 35 people that have to make a decision. And at that point, now you actually have a coordination question. It's this question of how do you get these people aligned around a direction because you can't, not everyone is going to be able to be on the board. Not everyone is going to be qualified to make a decision. And so it's even like the leadership structure that evolves out of that is really interesting. I was going to say, one of the things that's popped up in my practice and in talking to families is getting everybody on the same wavelength, not only educationally and skill set wise, which is difficult, extremely difficult when you get to the third generation. But you, you have this notion, I think it's sort of this immutable law, which is the assets generally increase linearly while the liabilities increase geometrically. And if families understand that and they understand why shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations is one of those things that is transcends culture, and that's what you're trying to forestall. Everything you just described really sort of points to that direction. And I find it interesting, and I think you and I would probably nodding our heads in agreement on that front. It's when you get to that third layer and you get to that number of people who they all want to benefit generally, yet some want to be involved and others don't care. Others are going in a different direction with that coordination problem. How do you think about that? And when there's conflict, what do you do to try to build the context so the family can work past that, knowing that it's coming? I think you raised an excellent point. I was just doing some modeling last week, trying to visually represent shirt sleeve to shirt sleeves. And it comes down to, there's three drivers that are behind it. It's exactly to your point. It's the return stream what can the assets actually produce? It's how fast does the family grow? And odds are you're not going to have a family-wide family planning that's successful. I mean, that just sounds like a recipe for family disaster <laughs> of trying to limit the number of grandchildren or something insane like that. <laughs> and so then it ultimately comes down to this, the distribution rate. Like it's the spending question of like, what does each generation expect out of the assets? And right beside that is just the simple reality that the environment that we grow up in, what we think of as normal, from our childhood, from a spending perspective, is kind of what we bring to adulthood and say, all right, if mom and dad lived on $3 million a year of spending, well, then when I contemplate my life on a go-forward basis, like, well, that's what normal looks like. And as a result, then each generation, if the assets are growing, to your point, if they're growing arithmetically just on a linear path and the family is growing exponentially, and oh, by the way, you're paying taxes at every change in generation for estate tax to some degree, you've got death, divorce, and other things that further divide the assets. Like Each generation, if they're not careful, ends up functionally taxing the assets further and further and further. So what G1 may say is an adequate distribution rate of 3 to 4%. Well, G2 may say, well, I need 4 to 5% to get what I expect out of the assets. And by the third gen, maybe that's 5 to 6%. If you play that out, the simple reality is, is that by the time you divide it, the assets get so small and then you begin depleting the principal. And at that point, it's kind of game over that you are back to shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve. So with that context in mind, what I think the most important question, and this is ultimately where the book kind of came out of it is, is how does, and I think if you look at the family wealth literature in general, especially dealing with large wealthy families, is it's very focused on the family, capital F the group of people entirely. And my whole point is, is that, yes, that is true, but families are also composed of individuals. And if the individuals are not clear on what they want to accomplish, when they come together as a family, you either have a lot of dysfunction or you almost embed 
conflict in the go forward path that is going to lead to family members either choosing to exit or unrealistic expectations about what is possible with the wealth. And so what it comes down to then is I think every generation, every member of every family at every generation has to sit down and answer these questions of what is the purpose of my wealth? What do I expect out of it? What are both the benefits in my lifetime that I expect to receive from it? And then what is my responsibility to future generations? Like, what do I owe if it's something that I inherited? What moral duty do I feel like I owe to my grandchildren and beyond, if any, and society writ large? And if the family can get clear on those kind of toggle points, now suddenly you can then design a family capital F, the big family structure. You can sit down and design a portfolio that is equipped to take the risk necessary to generate the return required. What I just generally find is, is it's kind of like the frog in the kettle, so to speak, is, is that like most people just, they exist with their wealth, but they never are able to sit back and really double click in on the various things that are going on around it, figuring out what's important to them, what's not, what's normal, what's not. And so making, and with the end goal of, can you take an implicit set of assumptions and make it very explicit and then say, okay, if we play out this explicit set of desires, what does that mean across all of my priorities? And at that point, now you can begin to make interesting trade-offs of, okay, if you live on this amount today, this is what that means to your grandkids, to your great-grandkids. If you do this amount for your grandkids, well, this is what that means for your philanthropic things that you care about. If your investments are structured in this way, where you've got X amount of private equity, or you've got this amount of fixed income, which is at zero interest rates, well, this is what's feasible on all this. And I think, again, it's kind of that when you can begin to take the soft philosophical strategic stuff and then marry that with the hard reality, now you go eyes wide open into a conversation with a financial advisor who's designing that portfolio and you all are working towards the same end. There's always this kind of information gulf between what the CFA is doing and what the client is doing and they don't necessarily speak the same language. And so the premise behind the book is, is like, can we get people to have a more articulate conversation with their advisory teams who generally are very well-intentioned but they are ultimately dependent on the quality of the information that they're getting from the client before as they make their recommendations. Getting back to capital F family, let's assume we can get many of the family members to be self-aware in the manner that you described, sort of educated about what wealth can and can't do for you, what they want to do with it, what that direction looks like. One of the components that I think is difficult is that communication between family members. And it starts from age zero, it goes on. You have all sorts of baggage that can occur from the patriarch and matriarch to the next generation and beyond, all sorts of things spoken and unspoken. And I've found that when that communication doesn't happen well early, that's what sow the seeds for conflict. Ultimately, no matter how self-aware people are about wealth and where it fits within their lives, that that conflict is expensive. People are going to make their own judgments that are informed by other things. And that's going to resultantly come in conflict with what other people think that the wealth should be a part of. What is your take on the communication process amongst siblings, I guess, maybe at the second generation is the first place to start, but then beyond? And I guess part of that too is sort of communication amongst family members, but then the role of transferring one's values to the next generation and having sort of, I guess, what would colloquially be called sort of the family mission statement. How important is that in guiding some of these concepts that you believe in here? I think you ask a really interesting question. And in my perspective of having worked 
and interacted with a lot of multi-generational families. I think communication and education, which are probably in many ways are two sides of the same coin, are the hardest things for families to do because it is critically important. Every entity within the family ecosystem from the business to if there's a family foundation, if there's a private trust company, if there's a family office, if there's a family council, each of those entities probably has some sort of message that they need to communicate. There's this also this question of, is the family educated enough to understand what's being communicated? If I'm providing financial results and I don't know what an income statement means or, or a balance sheet looks like, there's only a limited amount of information that can be communicated effectively. And so all that to say, communication and education, extremely important, also extremely hard to do. And so I think the question then is, okay, as the family begins to think through that, I come back to this, there's a sentiment that's been expressed that people underestimate what they can accomplish in a decade, but overestimate what they can accomplish in a year. And I think people view, take communication, for example, as like we have to go from zero to 100 in a 12-month period of time. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have like quarterly family meetings and they're going to be 18 hours long and we're going to sit in a conference room and we're going to parade people through. And it's kind of like almost like the cram down theory of communication. And the reality is, is that like, especially for people who aren't home gamers, like this is not people that like, and generally within the family, that's the case. Like you may have a one to two, three, four family members that are really interested in, especially with the financial piece of it, that's kind of how they're wired, but you're going to see a diversity of backgrounds and interests and so you've got to think about the same way that any marketing agency says, like, look, someone's got to see an ad multiple times before they respond. You've got to lay out a process and a framework so that you start at the 100 level. And that may be what all that you can accomplish in 2021 is the basics. And in 2022, like maybe you do a review of the basics and then you extend. But it's if you can lay out this methodical process and framework and keep at it over a long period of time, I think that's how you get the family there to your questions and comments around like mission statements and values. I think what's really interesting is the dynamic of what values does the family prioritize when they talk amongst themselves versus what are the values that the family actually lives out? And I think sometimes families like their values exercises can be so aspirational in nature. And that's not to say that that's a bad thing. I mean, I think we all should probably have a couple of values that we say, I'm not as generous as a person as I would like to be. And that's something that I really aspire to be. Like that seems like a healthy path of self-improvement. The important thing about values is, is that they become normative in the sense that they help you set and make your decisions. And so the question then is, is the family really honest about what the actual values of the family are? Like if the family says that they really value transparency and communication, but then when they get together, the patriarch doesn't allow them to have any sort of open dialogue or there's no information that's communicated other than like, actually, I mean, I know of a family or had met a family recently that they asked their next gens to sign their tax returns without reading the tax return because they didn't <laughs> want the next gens to know how much money they had made that year. Lovely. I have no idea what their family values are, but probably it's like respect, honesty, trust. I mean, it's there are a couple like motherhood and apple pie kind of values. And so you look at that and then you look at the behavior that's there. It's like, well, wait a second. Those are in massively incongruous and so then the question is like, well, what's actually the value? And then are you willing to do the work? Some families, it's they're not willing to do the work. And that's okay. It just, but recognize, but there's a cost for that choice. To sort of veer off into a slightly different direction, but important is the idea of the difference between ownership succession or maybe the value succession and the operational succession of a family business. 
those of us who've seen the show Succession on HBO, they deal with those issues on a episode by episode basis as to who's qualified to run the company, what egos are bruised as it relates to being passed over, who's qualified, who's not, who's personality wise, maybe better suited for it. And that that in many ways, I mean, I haven't quite finished the show up, but the concept of how the value part of the wealth is almost beside the point. They're not really worried about the spending on the show. They're worried about the ego drive and the control over the business when the patriarch ultimately passes on. In your experience, how prevalent is that with the families that you deal with for whom the wealth is coming from one major source that's family controlled? And what have you seen work as far as helping that along everything from early communication to bringing people in to keeping them informed and et cetera? Succession is an awesome case study. I will say it is like they turned everything up to 11 on all the (laughs) dimensions of family dysfunction there. Including the personalities. I have trouble watching it. I get real annoyed. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's a little too much. (laughs) And as you finish season two, it's fantastic. So in that show, I think you're exactly right. And I'm kind of quick to even sub-segment, like, especially with wealthy families, like there are various tiers. Like the Roy's of succession are clearly in the kind of 10 billion and up range. And at that point, like it's just the level of wealth is so large that it's exactly it's inconsequential because they can literally do whatever they want and they cannot spend it as fast as it comes in. That segment you can almost put into its own kind of microcosm of wealthy families. In that core range of like lifetime exemption right now is $25 million. I was looking beforehand. If you look at tax return data, it would argue that you enter the 1% of net worths in the U.S. with about $4 million in assets, with an average net worth of 14. The top 10 basis points is at about $21 million, with an average net worth of 72. So I think really when you start getting into that top half of a percent of net worths to that one basis point, sub $10 billion range, in that range is probably where I would say, like, when you think of a wealthy family, they're probably sitting somewhere in there, like the 20 million to 5 billion range. At that point, I think typically what you find is what's really unique and wonderful about family businesses is that in many cases, the business itself is viewed as the asset of the family. And in some cases, it is viewed as it is kind of a surrogate child of the family, or it's so intertwined with the identity of the family that it's really hard to extricate the fact. And so what I generally find is, is when you sit down with successful family businesses across the country, they typically do not view the business as a financial asset. They view it as a legacy asset that tells the story of the family. They may view it as a social asset that is creating jobs, giving philanthropically in the communities where they are engaged, and maybe creating employment opportunities for the family. So there's a real sense of, and this is what I think is really powerful about family businesses, a real sense of this kind of stewardship, which can be a loaded term. But there is, I think, for a lot of families, this sense of like, there are bigger purposes to be served with this business. And oh, by the way, like, yes, there are financial rewards that come from it. But for the most part, it is, I generally find that it's the other dynamics that are at play that weigh heavily, first and foremost, in the family's mind. And then, oh, by the way, like, there are financial assets that come from it as well. But that almost tends to be like a second derivative conversation when the family gets together, if they're still an operating business, they want to talk about like the issues of the business. What's going on in the factory? What major customers are doing? What are we seeing? Who are we hiring? Where are we expanding? How are we growing? All of those dynamics. 
Have you seen situations where families have let go of the family business, they've liquidated it, they've sold it, they've gotten the cash out, whatever, and the families have lost their way afterwards? That binding culture that that business represented, now that it's gone, even though it's replaced with liquid wealth, let's say, that the purpose has driven families apart or otherwise caused other destruction? Absolutely. The challenge is, is when you go from being the X people, like we walk into a store, we see our product on the shelf. There's that wonderful sense of tangible identity that's there. The question is, can the family build other structures that provide a level of stickiness or glue is sometimes used as a term for the family to continue to remain invested and involved? I do think that there is just a generally like that process. Someone once said that like all change is initially processed as trauma. And while I am not a psychologist or sociologist, like that seems to make good sense that like families who sell businesses experience very real loss. It's a tremendous break from the past. The question is, is can they design a future? And Jay Hughes uses this term in his books, what he calls like a family of affinity. But it means like ultimately like affinity groups that we are part of are things that we voluntarily choose to be a part of. And I think that becomes the longer term question for families is how do we create a structure and an environment so that as the family grows, expands both in terms of number, geographic diversity, frankly, political diversity, you certainly just see the family grow and get more fragmented. How do you create something that those family members at every generation say, I have the chance to be a part of this, whatever that is, and I'm going to voluntarily choose to do that. Now, in exchange for that, there's going to be both hopefully financial rewards because the assets are being well stewarded. But then there's also responsibilities of each generation to bring their unique sets of gifts and talents to better the whole. I think that's the work of families that when you see, meet and talk with families that have made it to fifth, sixth, seventh generations and beyond, or even some of the European families that are into the teens of generations, like they have created this ecosystem that the family continues to desire to be a part of, even if it doesn't necessarily mean massive financial wealth. Because as we covered earlier, like it's really hard to say that the assets of the family are going to be able to keep up on a per capita basis from generation to generation. The odds that each person is going to be as rich as their parents are is just very low. But that doesn't mean that you can't manage the assets in such a way that family members still have wonderful lifestyles. But it just may mean that not everyone gets to own a G5 within the family. That may be something that happened in earlier generations. It may not be something that happens by G4, G6, something like that. (laughs) Well, and it's tough, too, because people do not want to go backwards. And it becomes trickier, too, when you've got assets like family compounds and so on, where there is a lot of attachment and memory placed to them. And there comes a point in many cases where those have to be given up. And that's a big bridge to cross, I've found, for some families. It is interesting how real estate and family identity can be so intertwined. And I can think about even just from my own experience, like we grew up with a lake place 45 minutes away from our house. We went multiple weekends a month in the summers, phenomenal times as a family. And so if you think about like the length of your childhood, like there's probably only a handful of memories that you walk away from as real kind of like mountaintop type moments. And those do seem to be tied to geography. Like they seem to be these places where we experience our family, our mom and dad, and our siblings in a way that's really positive. It's affirming. We create wonderful memories. I think it's really natural that families want to go down that path. The question is, is like, okay, well, how do you scale that with the family as it grows? And that doesn't mean that it can't scale. It just means that the family 
this idea of like taking implicit and making it explicit. With the family compound, if that was a G1 purchase and every G2 member expects to have equal or more time, they all want the 4th of July weekend to be at the family beach house. At some point, like that structure is going to blow up. So the question is, is like, how are you going to create a process that is fair and how the family defines fair and is a way to address that? Because otherwise, like it's the implicit assumptions, at some point someone's going to get sideways on it. And if you don't have a way to manage that, that's just a piece of dysfunction that enters in. And too much of that, I heard someone say that like, there's a difference between having skeptics in your family and having cynics in the family. <laughs> but I do think that like, if there's so much dysfunction, those skeptics can move the line to cynicism. And at that point, like you are seeing the fraying ends of the family. And then it's just a matter of time until somebody wants to take their marbles and go. So I think that's where structure becomes your friend, process becomes your friend, even within like the business. A common flashpoint is like compensation for family members within the business. If the family can sit down and say, like, here's our policy on compensation, we're going to have an independent comp committee of the board, and we believe that we should pay people like, if we were going to go hire a best-in-class performer to operate in that role, if the family wasn't in that role, and we should pay accordingly, I mean, that's one possible policy. But if you are explicit about how you want to approach those things, then it's not a personal decision that's being made. Then it's, a, no, this is the way that we conduct our business. Or you may say, look, we're going to be at the median for every role. But hopefully you're applying that across your whole business. I think a lot of times people just are very ad hoc about the way that they do things, which works when you have power control and ownership decision-making authority concentrated in the patriarch. When it gets diffuse, that's where you set the recipe or you put out the ingredients for something potentially pretty toxic because you don't necessarily have that, like, that one strong personality or voice to be able to say, this is what we're going to do, take it or leave it. So I'm going to take a little bit of a left turn here. And since I wrote a book and I'm always interested in hearing how other people experience that or how they went through it, take us through a little bit about the book writing process. Maybe to start with, what was it inside you that felt like these lessons that are important and useful deserved your time and attention to put it into book form? And then maybe talk a little bit about how you got from A to B to C to D on the process to where we are today, which is publication tomorrow. I started the process about three and a half years ago. I finished my CFA designation and I think my wife was like, okay, well, you need a project because you don't sit idly well. And so I've always been a reader. It has been on my kind of bucket list of things to do to write a book since I was probably 10 years old. Um, so I knew that at some point in life, like this was something that I wanted to do. It was then a question of like, all right, this seems like a unique window of time. And so I, in the course of working with clients over the years, had read a lot of I mean, functionally, kind of almost all of the personal finance, wealth management, investing books that are out there. I was looking today, I've read like, I've averaged 35 to 40 books a year for the last 10 years in terms of books read. So I've covered a lot of material. As I read things, it was like, okay, but it feels like there's this book of like, well, how do I take all of these pieces and kind of stitch them together into some sort of like overarching process? Like I'm a kind of a systems thinker at heart. I like seeing how do you lay out the like A to B, the C to D. And so there's a lot of great wealth management books that are out there. What I wanted to do was try and like, at least in terms of how my crazy brain works, was put together some sort of a process of like, if you're going to think about the strategic questions, the big picture, almost philosophical type questions, how do you do that in a way that's accessible? I mean, I think it's really, and you said it earlier, the dynamic of being self-reflective enough to think through some of these things. Like for most people, like 
it's hard to know where you start eating the elephant of self-reflection on some things. And so to lay out a process of like, here's where you begin and, uh, and here's how you chase the rabbits and get to something that lays out the things that are most important to you, I felt like that would be something that was helpful. So I would not recommend this as a writing process. I honestly just started writing. I knew that I needed to get close to like at least 50,000 words or some sort of like arbitrary length to have something of size. And I just kind of started going at it. And then over time, this book started to evolve from it. But really, it was I wrote for a year pretty extensively and then took some time, like put it aside for a handful of months and then kind of came back to it and said, okay, like there's actually some ideas that are connected here, even though each chapter was fairly independent at that point. And then about a year ago, I started working with an editor who was super helpful and even kind of helping refine the structure and flow a little bit more. And so knowing what I know now, everyone says like, you should do that kind of organic work in outline form rather than in written word form. So noted for book two at some (laughs) point, but for me, it was the best way. It was just like, I would read, I'd go order 10, 15 books on Amazon, read through a bunch of stuff and say, okay, what am I seeing that's common here? Where can I add maybe a unique twist on that? Just given my background as more of an investment expert, as opposed to somebody who has a degree in sociology or a PhD in psych or the like, where can I bring some real world examples to bear? And so that's kind of what played out, but it was not probably the most efficient way to produce something, but it's done. Well, I'll tell you, having read it and I'm very impressed with it because I think that I basically tried to do the same thing. And I ended up sort of taking lots of different anecdotes or fact patterns that I had seen and tried to glean out maybe, I don't know if universal truths is the right word, but at least commonalities like you described and tried to make it a very storytelling exercise where people could kind of pick out the things that were interesting and use it for themselves. I was very impressed with the way you structured it. And I'm a little bit surprised and pleasantly so that you kind of organically started writing and that the structure kind of came afterward because I didn't get the sense of that in the book. It looked like you kind of knew where you wanted to go from the beginning to the end from the outset of when you started writing it. So kudos to you or maybe to your editor (laughs) to help corral you and get you in the right direction. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's very kind. I think truly like that's where for all aspiring authors, like a good editor is well worth their weight in gold. And then honestly, like a lot of this was, I would work on a bunch of ideas and then I'd go meet with a bunch of clients and we would work through some things or you try out ideas, you put out a blog post, kind of see, okay, what do people hone in on? Does this make sense? If it doesn't resonate as well, okay, let's go back to the drawing board. So that the ability to kind of iterate in and out of like, okay, does this work in the real world? And then take it back to something that's more either theoretical or more written down, I think that was a helpful process tool. I mean, I think at the end of the day, like, and I would assume you're the same way, like there's a million books a year that are published. You want to put something out that's of value. You're asking for people to give four to seven hours of their time, most likely depending on their speed to reading the book and time is the most precious resource. So I really wanted to make sure that I was trying to bring something that was delivered a lot, (laughs) was highly additive to people because if they're going to pay for it and or give you their time, like I really wanted it to be worth their effort. Here's a tough question, and it's one that someone asked me, and it was a great one when I was writing my book. And they said, when did you know it was good or decent or publishable? But when did you know it was good and you could feel good about putting it out? Because publishing a book is putting yourself out there in the most naked way. And you'll find this. You're going to get a lot of five-star reviews because I've read it and it's very good. You'll get a bunch of four-star reviews. There are probably going to be a bunch of three- and two-star reviews from Dingbats. But during the writing process, I did not know whether 
what I was putting out there was going to be of decent quality. And my first experience with it, I gave it to two people. I gave it to a friend that I would say is an economical dingbat. And I thought that would be useful because if he found value out of it or otherwise understood it, then that was going to work. And I gave it to my dad, who is a former savings and loan bank president, who kind of knows his way around this stuff, but is not an investment manager. So, and he's not a wealth guy. And I thought if he kind of picked some things out of it and learned something that I thought it'd be good. And that first draft, they came back, my economic dingbat friend was like, eh, eh. I was like, oh God, I was crestfallen. I hadn't solved his worldview. My dad said, you've really got the kernel of something good here. Here's a set of notes. And then what I did was I took that, I took the comments, created a new, very overarching new draft. And then I sent it to eight people in the industry that I trusted. And then when I got those comments back, that's when I knew that I could go forward and that this wasn't a crazy exercise and that it was worth putting it out there. What was your experience like with that? Did you have any self-doubt while you were doing this? Were you like halfway through the writing process before the editor? Were you like, what am I doing here? Should be playing with my kids or going out in the sun or working on my golf game or something. When did you cross that bridge where you're like, okay, I feel like this is something. I don't know if you're an Enneagram fan, but I'm an Enneagram four. And so with the three wing, which basically means that like I am walking self-doubt already. (laughs) So there's always been plenty of that. I think I am still early enough in the process that like I've been very encouraged with the initial feedback that I've gotten on the book so far, like folks like yourselves who've been very gracious and kind with your words and thoughts around the book. Only a handful of people have seen it in kind of my closer orbit. I've tried out a bunch of ideas. Honestly, I think like, at least for me, for like the process of like writing it. And then I think I put it aside for six months. Like I didn't look at it. I didn't touch it. And then came at it with a pretty fresh eye. For me, that was enough to be able to be like, okay, let's look at what's actually here and say like, does this make any sense? And then I think there's that old quote about writing that talks about killing your darlings of like just not being scared to like really just take a machete to things. And I think that's been in the second, third and fourth edit, like just freeing myself up to be like brutal with like, I like reading. I like big words. I tend to like to write sentences that are overly complicated and just to be able to cull out like extraneous fluff and (laughs) this kind of things, the stylistic things. I think it was reaching a point of personal objectivity to be able to do some of that. And then as well, just to get a handful of like trusted friends to say like, yeah, you're on the right track with some of this stuff or to real time kind of brainstorm some of the ideas. Like, I think that's been encouraging. So we'll see. I Hopefully I'm at a point where in life where it's you learn to take all criticism with a grain of salt and avoid. You shouldn't read too many of your five stars and too many of your one stars because both sides are probably smoking something. And <laughs> that sounds about right. But we'll see. Honestly, it's been a great process just to get some things down on paper to hopefully bring something that's additive to the space into the literature. And if it's helpful to families as they wrestle with some of these questions, that's all the benefit. I mean, I personally think that family businesses and family offices have the ability to be a really powerful force for good in our economic system, in our local communities. And if you can help them flourish and do things well, like actually here in Nashville, there are a number of families that have dramatically impacted the arc of our city because of the direction and strategy that they brought both to their businesses and also their philanthropic work. And I think especially in where we are in terms of wealth inequality, our broader society, like I think we need people who are 
really tuned in and turned on to what they are trying to accomplish with their wealth. That feels like the right message for this cultural moment is what is our responsibility to our fellow man and how do we bring that to bear? And I think the way that you start that is by getting clear on a lot of this stuff. My guess is if you've seen the headlines about McKinsey Scott, Jeff Bezos's ex-wife, and giving away six plus billion dollars this year, like the only way she gets the clarity to do that is, is she's got a really clean line of sight around what she's trying to accomplish. And then she just said, what would it look like if we did that at internet scale? I mean, how powerful is that? And I think there's an opportunity for other families to do similar things if they're willing to do the hard work of getting to the point that then they can begin to push on the scale lever of saying like, okay, how do we dramatically supercharge our impact on these things? I think that's the unique moment that we're in and the opportunity for the book. So who knows? I mean, that's probably at its highest point, what I would hope. But if one person reads it and it makes an impact, that's great too. <laughs> so we'll start to wind down here. The book's targeted at sort of colloquially, sort of the 1% and above. For people who aren't in the situations that we're describing, family businesses, multi-generational wealth, maybe aspirationally they want to get there. What are a couple things, a couple lessons that you think might be useful for some people to take away? I mean, you and I are probably big Morgan Housel fans, Brian Portnoy, and others who talk about maybe more of the personal finance around these things. Are there any points that you think are interesting for the broader public? Absolutely. And I think certainly like the core market for the book are going to be families and individuals who are at a certain level where they're asking some of these really big questions. But I think the reality is that once, if you remember your Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like once you are over providing food and shelter and water and clothing, the odds are that for the vast majority of the American public or the kind of the public of the developed world, like we are all making spending decisions against some sort of rubric. The question is, is are we aware of what we're doing? And I think that whether that means that you're worth $25 million or you are an attorney at a law practice or you're a working professional within a business, all families are making a series of financial choices based off of some sort of values metric. And maybe this is kind of the theme of this call. The question is, is are those implicit decisions? Or are they explicit decisions? And have they taken the chance to think through what is most important to them? What are they trying to accomplish? And I think there are wonderful examples that a multi-generational family that's worth a billion dollars can do things at scale in a certain way that are unique. They may have a private foundation for giving as a philanthropy. Well, the great thing is, if you look at a structure like a donor advised fund, and by no means investment advice at all, but donor advised funds are a really easy way for a family to have kind of the opportunity to behave like a private foundation, but do it with a much lower price point. The great thing about the scale of the internet and the scale of the modern business climate is that a lot of the services that previously were only available to the ultra high net worth are broadly available to what you would call kind of the high net worth or the affluent. So folks who are worth between $500,000 and $25 million, $500,000 million. At that range, you still have a lot of options that are available to you. I think it's the question of, can you learn from folks who are maybe further up the wealth curve and say, okay, well, what is it, what works? And then what can be really powerful in the lives of our families? Generally, what I found was even working with traditional high net worth clients in a previous firm. Many times when you ask someone, well, what are you trying to accomplish with your wealth? The quick answer would be like, well, we want to see our grandkids and we want to make sure that we can travel in a certain way. And that was it. And generally, folks who are able to accumulate wealth, they don't have a spending problem. They have the ability to save, to kind of self-denial <laughs> so that those wealth grow over time. And so 
they hit their 60s and 70s, those retirement years, generally what I found is a lot of people are very financially well off. They just don't know what's the art of the possible of, okay, well, what would it look like? Yes, with a portfolio, you can certainly cover their travel desires. You can certainly cover whatever they want to do with their grandkids. For a lot of people, you would have what you would call like a wealth surplus. It's more wealth than is necessarily needed to fund their spending at their current concept. And the reality is, is like most people don't materially step up their standard of living. Like if you're used to living on $300,000 a year of income, most people would find it very challenging to double that or to triple that in terms of, especially by the time they're in their 60s, because you kind of get used to your standard of living. So if you have excess, the question is, is like, what are you going to do with that? And that's not a question that's unfamiliar to families in the, in the multi-billion dollar range. It's just a question of there may be another number or another comma in the figure, but it's still the same heart question of like, if you're worth 10 and you want to set up a trust fund for your grandkids, well, what are you trying to accomplish with that? It may not be a $100 million trust fund, but look, like a, a million dollar trust fund can be either a massively positive influence or a massively negative influence. That's a question that you should think about as you go down that process. That's where I think for kind of normal wealthy folk, if you will, the book has a message for them too. Terrific. David, what a treat. And again, I am thrilled for your publication. How do we find your book? If you go to winanythingispossible.com, that's probably the easiest place. That'll drop you right to the webpage for the book. And it's on Amazon or any of the other kind of reputable booksellers, Barnes & Noble, that are out there as well. And for those of us listening, they'll be in the show notes as well. So you'll be able to click directly if you are looking at the podcast from there. David, thank you very much. Congratulations. And look forward to hopefully seeing you on a New York Times bestseller list in addition to Amazon. Thanks, Frazier. It's a real privilege and a pleasure to be here today. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.